Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we are delighted to be speaking to Father Sergei Trostiansky uh, of the Orthodox Church, coming in from Bogota, Colombia, to talk to us about the Cappadocian Fathers. Sergei, thank you so much for coming to speak with us on this incredibly rich and important subject. Thank you, Earl. The Cappadocian Fathers are unbelievably important to students of Western esotericism because on the one hand, they are deeply important to traditions of Christian mysticism, tradition, other things that we may want to discuss as esotericism. But on the other hand, they are the gold standard of Orthodox theology, which goes against the model that the esoteric is necessarily the marginalized. The esoteric is the rejected. It's the heretical. No, these guys are what it is to be Orthodox, it seems to me. One of the things, you know. So they are fascinating. They're also fascinating because their thought is fascinating. I want to put something to you. As I understand it, the Cappadocian Fathers are usually discussed as three men. Basil, who became Bishop of Caesarea, called Basil of Caesarea. Gregory of Nyssa, his brother, his younger brother, who became Bishop of a place called Nyssa, also in Cappadocia. And last but not least, Gregory of Nazianzus, who became Archbishop of Constantinople. So he's he actually is the one who achieved the big dog status in terms of uh, church rank, even though, of course, these guys aren't interested in that. A great Hellenist, a great rhetorician, uh, a big, a heavyweight of Hellenic cultivated culture in the East Roman Empire. Now, all of these guys live roughly at the same time, the fourth century. But I want to say, put to you that there's a fourth Cappadocian father we should talk about, namely the Cappadocian sister, Macrina the Younger, because she is incredibly important to this grouping, and she's a theologian, and she's a philosopher. Tell us about these, these people, and, and what do you think of my inclusion of Macrina in the conversation? Oh, Earl, I totally uh, agree with you that uh, anytime anyone mentions the Cappadocians, uh, the name of Macrina must be also brought up because uh, supposedly she was also high-end theologian and a philosopher who uh, taught philosophy, Gregory of Nyssa, right? And you can perhaps see some traces of her original uh, theology and philosophy in his The Anima. Yeah, unfortunately, back then, uh, because of her gender, uh, she could not write uh, treatises on her own. But nevertheless, she was indeed quite formative for the whole uh, sort of family of the Cappadocians, right? So we talk about uh, Basil the Great and his brother, Gregory of Nyssa, and their fellow sort of uh, friend and acquaintance, Gregory uh, Nazianzus, right? Basil the Great and Gregory Nazianzus uh, spent 10 years together in Athens studying philosophy, studying rhetoric. And uh, basically, their uh, both theological and ecclesiastical careers are linked. And they uh, represent this imperial, uh, classical uh, Christian philosophy and theology in some ways, right? And meantime, 
They also participated in the Council of Constantinople I, and uh, Gregory Nazianzus was the presiding bishop, even though he was fired and replaced by some other people. Meantime, because uh, he was a staunch uh, supporter of this uh, Trinitarian kind of homoousian theology, which was back then a bit uh, edgy and unacceptable to the vast majority of the people, right? And um, because the contest was uh, between the Hamousian theology and uh, back then, like I would say, soft Arianism, right? And uh, Arianism in some ways uh, introduced the idea of hierarchy into uh, the, no the, the, the notion of Trinity, right? And what happened was that during the time of the first council of Constantinople, uh, it was about the role of the Holy Spirit and uh, his uh, kind of ontological status within the Trinity, right? Uh, the Spirit. Is the Spirit of the same being as the Father? Is the Spirit of the same being of the Son? So Gregory's point was, yes, he is equal in that sense and that there's no sort of uh, ontological hierarchy within the Trinity in the sense that they are all equal, even though the Father is the only presiding cause of, uh, you know, all uh, the, the, the being of the Trinity. Nevertheless, they are co-equal and co-essential. And that was the key point of this classical Trinitarian uh, theology. Yet it was unacceptable to many uh, bishops and theologians of that time because they thought that, well, in the previous council, Nicaea first, we affirmed uh, this kind of homoousian status of the sun, and perhaps that's enough because we already have like two gods, technically speaking, right? And to introduce just another god. Let's not do that. Let us just agree on this uh, kind of classical at that time theology of co-glorification, that the spirit is worshipped and glorified together with the father and the son, right? He spoke through the prophets. So Gregory was against that idea because he thought that it is a concession to uh, the soft Arianism and that it needs to be stated that the spirit is of the same essence and of the same being as the father and the son. Okay, and basically that is what we see in the chorus of that council in its definition, right? The council itself uh, basically uh, teaches this uh, soft Aryan theology of co-glorification, homotimia, and not this classical theology as we understand it of uh, uh, like kind of co-substantiality of all the hypotheses uh, of the Trinity. Now, the interesting point about that is that the role of Gregory of Nazianzus, right, and Father John Magakin, 
right, wrote extensively on that, was that he basically rewrote the council. And we now read the council and understand it through the lenses of Gregory of Nazianzus theology, right? If you look at the proceedings of the council and completely dissociate yourself from Gregory Nazianzus, you see one theology, right? And one particular very clear theological stance, but that is not how we understand it because we read this council through Gregory's theological orations, which uh, he wrote basically right at the time of the council. And we understand that the council pro proclaims this uh, theology of co-substantiality, which is simply not the case. So you can see the magnitude and the significance of this character as a theologian, as a public intellectual, right? right. Uh, he became a theologian and uh, um Bishop kind of randomly in some ways. It was like, Earl, you know, Earl, come on, dude, you are wasting your time. So, no, 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 I'm not wasting my time. I'm doing a lot of intellectual doing activities. doing a podcast, come on. Yes, yes, exactly. And they say, no. Well, in that sense, you are not wasting your time. But meantime, you're not doing anything to the public good, right? You're not contributing to this kind of mutual prosperity and flourishing of the whole. And you can do it only by getting ordained. So something to think about, yeah? <laughs> so he was drugged and he was ordained involuntary, right? And he Whoa. became a bishop, right? Eventually. So hang on a second, hang on a second. You can force someone to become to become ordained. So this is like some ex opere operato, like they're going to pour the oil on your head and you're now a priest, whether you like it or not. That's how it worked, basically. That is the choice of community, not your personal choice. That's what happened to Lactantius, for instance. He was dragged to the altar, right? And he said, like, dude, you have no choice. He was a pagan intellectual, but the Christians understood that he can truly contribute to this uh, kind of mutual flourishing and well-being through uh, his capacity to proclaim the gospel, yes, right. through his golden mouth. So because Nazianzus is maybe the top orator of his era, or maybe that's John Chrysostom, anyway, he's in an era when rhetoricians are rock stars, right? This guy is spitting like the meanest bars. He's When he speaks in the public square, Everyone listens, and so you want him on your side. Is that kind of the idea? You want this guy to be absolutely, but the also it's not just that. I mean, remember, remember that um, his uh, mature state of his uh, stage of his career took place during the time of Julian, and so Julian revolted against Christianity, and uh, one of the sort of means to uh, ostracize the Christians from from culture, from kind of any participation in a society in a more global scale was to ban them from having access to a classical education. So you're not supposed to read 
Homer, not supposed to do like uh, classical philosophy and drama and all that stuff. Like uh, it will be to say that like, you know, hey, dude, you cannot uh, listen to like hip hop music. You cannot see the, the opera or right. you, like, you know, you have no access. So what can you do? Apollinarius right, who was uh, one of the arch heretics, but nevertheless a very significant character. Meantime, launched a project of rewriting all culture in through this kind of Christian lenses or perspectives. Well, you have no access to poetry. What can you do? You rewrite Homer in the Christian sort of modality, so to say, right. right? So you redo your own Christian culture. And Gregory Nazianz basically took on that same agenda and he rewrote culture. A lot of his theology is in the form of poetry, which is a major impediment to understanding and it's not a format, it's not a genre that we are used to at this point. So it's kind of quite difficult to read. When you read his homilies, right, his uh, homilia, that's one thing. They're more rhetorical, they're more kind of propositional um, based on uh, rational discourse and some sort of like uh, syllogistic mode of reasoning kind of antonyms, right? But meantime, poetry is a different thing. And yet, if you think about classical antiquity, right, uh, all the classical philosophy like Parmenides and Anaxagoras and all that stuff, you know, it was all poetry. But it's definitely difficult to uh, read and comprehend. Yeah, indeed. As Plotinus says at some point, Plato's Parmenides is easier to understand than Parmenides. And, (laughs) you know, if Plato's Parmenides is meant to be easy to understand, then Parmenides must be really hard to understand because Plato's (laughs) Parmenides is not easy. Okay, thank you very much for that exposition. We've got our brilliant young intellectual, Gregory of Nazianzus, who has actually, one thing we forgot to mention is that he probably went to school with Julian, right? At some point, at least. It's possible. It's possible. Okay, it's one of those, like, it would have been really interesting if it did happen, but we don't know if it happened, stories. But they're contemporaries anyway. And he has had the Hellenist education. He is a cultivated man, but he's also a passionate Christian. Or is he a passionate Christian? Does he become one once he's forced to be a priest? Or does he have that kind of drive beforehand? Well, I mean, the thing is that um, everything is based on some kind of direct, unmediated experience. And once you have it, you become a Christian. It's just that uh, you can be an observant Christian and uh, take the Eucharist and do all the sacraments and things like that without being actively involved in the life of the church, right? But it's only when you become ordained, when you're tonsured, that you receive your own legal voice, in the church, you know, in in that culture and civilization. And I would say that he was a Christian even before his ordination. And yet, and yet, it was more, I guess, a a kind of intellectual exercise. So um, 
before it became more practical, more pastoral, and more uh, kind of socially significant, before the time when he could participate in ecumenical gatherings and um, sort of make a difference for the being of uh, the whole church through his uh, sort of theological and philosophical um, sort of input. I'd love to come back to philosophy and theology in a minute, but just on the kind of basic biography front, can you talk a little bit about Basil, his brother Gregory, their sister Macrina? Um, what kind of people are these? Because Gregory of Nazianzus, and we have to keep our Gregories separated, right? So that we've talked about Gregory of Nazianzus, the, the reluctant priest who becomes a great theologian, rhetorician, maybe, maybe we want to call him a theological star of his age, right? What about these other guys? Just to get an idea of who they are, where they're living, all that kind of stuff before we get into the more recondite uh, matters. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's really hard to sketch a brief outline of all such great figures. But speaking of Basel, he is the senior kind of brother and the senior uh, partner in this whole uh, sort of endeavor, right? Basel, as far as I understand him, was the most probably prominent uh, philosophical mind of that time. And he aimed to uh, basically create a theological framework, yeah, define the most basic terms of theology, explain the most foundational theological conceptions, doctrine, dogma of the time, and he largely succeeded. Yet he was also a practitioner. He was a monk, a practicing ascetic and a bishop. Right, and in that case, his theological uh, mind uh, was always constrained by his pastoral mind, by his concern for the well-being of the whole. You know how people are ultimately in this post-Lipsarian state are feisty, right? They uh, constantly enter into conflicts, right? They clash, their wheels are antinomical. And it's very important to keep things under control and be this reconciling kind of uniting force. And that's who Basel was. He was willing to negotiate, to take uh, some sort of to give concession to his adversaries, right? So as to attain peace and tranquility in ecclesiastical life. So he's not just a great mind, but he is also, he was also a great uh, practitioner, a priest, a bishop, someone responsible for um, this kind of peace and tranquility and calmness within the church. And uh, that is also what you find in his theological works. Even though he was a very, very sharp theologian, he definitely knew all classical traditions so well. When you read his uh, Hexameron, his homilies on 
uh, six days of creation, right? You can see that basically he aimed to uh, provide this whole uh, kind of cosmological and uh, kind of philosophical explanation of uh, the origins of uh, the universe, its constituency, its fates through Christian lenses. Meantime, utilizing a lot of Aristotelian, Stoic, Platonic um, sort of wisdom. Now, he's, he's exposed to all these ideas and using them. What about origin, right? Because origin is also exposed to that whole tradition. And he has written the Periarchon, and we have to remember we're in the fourth century. So there's grum people are grumbling about origin and saying, oh, I think he's wrong about this. I think he's wrong about that. But he hasn't been anathematized. He's still considered one of the, by some people, he's considered the greatest expounder of Christian doctrine after the apostles, right? Is Basil reading origin? Because when you describe the, the hexameron, which, you know, I should have read by now, but I haven't, I'm thinking, oh, that sounds a bit like a kind of experimental research philosophy expose of hermeneutical expose of, of Genesis, just like the Periarchon of origin is, you know? How does origin fit into our picture? Oh, absolutely, Earl. Thank you so much. So origin is quite formative for the Cappadocian fathers, right? They love him, and they uh, try to give his theology a more kind of up-to-date orthodox rendering, right? But they live uh, during the time of the second Origenian controversy, uh, where they feel that origin is about to be ecumenically condemned and anathematized, posthumously, of course, right? And along with his disciples like Evagrius and Didymus. And in, in that case, they've decided to save uh, Origen's legacy. And they've come up with this uh, philokalia. I think it was quite a new genre at the time. So what is philokalia? This is one thing uh, I wanted to talk to you about. Yes. <laughs> and that is how we uh, kind of fortunately, orig uh, Origins uh, treatises were not uh, trashed and not destroyed, uh, but they might have been destroyed. But basically, Basel and Gregory decided to save his legacy by creating this anonymous Philokalia, what we now know of as the Philokalia of origin, right? Where they set aside all uh, controversial uh, things and incorporated his exegetical theory, which they found to be the most valuable of all. And that was incorporated into this philokalia. What is that philokalia? Philokalia is some sort of like a, a dumpster, or the way I understand it, or uh, some sort of like a, a junk box, right? Where you store all things that are in some ways compromised. This great philokalia that we have of all the things, you know, it all consists of treatises of people who are compromised, like... Uh, Evagrius, yeah, I mean, again, his name and his theology is both uh, ecumenically anathematized and condemned by the Second uh, Council of uh, Constantinople. And uh, what can you do with that? Well, to say that you ascribe some sort of pseudonym 
call right. him Agius Macarius or, you know, like use some like legitimate uh, Christian name in order to uh, sort of hide his identity and yet exhibit fully his uh, treatises or people whose not just theology but ecclesiastical affiliation was compromised like Isaac of Nineveh. I mean, supposedly he was an historian, theologian. And so, meantime, by kind of lumping all such things that are extremely beautiful, valuable, and yet in some ways compromised, you kind of rescue them from being completely, you know, uh, forgotten. You save the legacy in some ways, but by sort of uh, setting aside their names and uh, by hiding uh, their origins. So, the, so first of all, when you say Basil and Gregory, this is Basil and his brother Gregory of Nissa, right? Who are doing this compilation, we think. No, not the Yanzis. Not the Yanzis. His, okay. his friends and Got it. not the Yanzis. Yes. So, they Basil and that Gregory Philokalia. have put together the Philokalia, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, still to this day a, a very central source for Orthodox spirituality, right? It's you. It's a prized textual compilation within Orthodox. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, the Philokalia of origin uh, is uh, such a thing that, you know, you can go back to his Periarchon, you can go back to his, uh, like, you know, like other treatises and kind of uh, see the the original source. You don't need to read the Philokalia. It's just that the good point about it is that it kind of com- combines all his exegetical efforts all together in one particular continuous treatise. So, in the podcast, when we talked about Origen back in the third century, we were saying this guy has this incredibly troubled relationship with orthodoxy in the sense that, yes, he will be anathematized. Certain of his teachings will be said, you know, this at, at councils, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But everyone wants Origen, right? You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and especially his hermeneutical strategies toward reading scripture as a whole. Old Testament and New Testament as one thing with one message, the ways you do that, the different levels you read at, everyone wants that. It's essential to Orthodox Christianity, right? We're not Marcionites or like, you know, various groups who want to ditch the Old Testament and only keep the New Testament. We, we want the whole thing. How can you have the whole thing? You need origin, basically. So this moment when the Philokalia is compiled by two of our Cappadocians is a really critical moment for the history of Christianity, it seems to me, because, okay, things are not looking good for the originist cause. We're going to just smuggle origin in, at least some of him, into orthodoxy, and it's going to work. Like the Philokalia is bread and butter approved orthodox text, right? So if one wanted to to draw a, a historical story of how origin exists within orthodoxy, this is one of the key crucial uh, parts of that story, right? The the compilation of the Philokalia. Is that, would you say that's a good way of putting it? Yes, I think it's a brilliant way to put it. Um, I got so excited about the origin side of things that I forgot to let you speak about Gregory of Nyssa, Basil's slightly younger brother, uh, probably like five years younger, and his sister Macrina. So can we talk about these guys? We'll come yeah, back absolutely. To so, um, whereas um, Basel and Gregory of Nazianzus are um, 
kind of internationally acclaimed and exposed to culture and education in Beirut, in Athens, uh, all across the globe. I mean, a multimillionaire family that can pay for their education and get them the best. Gregory of Nice, uh, the younger brother of Basel, uh, is not as well exposed, and he does not have access immediately to education. He lives in Cappadocia, and he is kind of homeschooled by Macrina, the older sister, right? Macrina, well, as far as we know about her, you know, from life and from some of the treatises of Gregory of Nyssa was a great uh, basically philosopher and theologian, right? And in some ways, when you read Basel's, I mean, what comes to mind especially is his De Anima, right? You can see that in some ways she aimed to synthesize the whole tradition. And we talk about Platonism, and we talk about Stoicism, and we talk about all classical culture and education, in particular trying to shed light on the issues of protology and eschatology, but meantime, sort of encapsulating the whole kind of theology and so all together. So it's a fascinating treatise, right? Written by Gregory of Nyssa. In general, when you read some kind of assessments of the Cappadocian fathers and their significance and their kind of uh, rank and quality and sort of uh, comparative uh, sort of rank, you will often see that he is listed as the most philosophically minded, as the deepest thinker. And in some ways, that might be the case. He is truly marvelous, even though it's kind of quite hard to read his treatises, right? Because his language is a bit cryptic, and his kind of flow of consciousness is not that easy to follow. And yet, that is precisely where you have the most uh, subtly sublime manifestations of uh, Christian philosophical phronema, I should say. So, he uh, then is uh, given this rank of a bishop of Nyssa, a small village somewhere in this rural Cappadocia by Basel, that he can, again, have a legitimate voice in Christian thought, right? And so that he can also preach and teach and do his pastoral kind of ministry, right? But meantime, his legacy is very philosophical. And so was the legacy of Macrina. I think they are kind of linked. We don't know how much of his thought is just a mere blueprint of Macrina's philosophy, right? So in that sense, uh, it's a fascinating subject on its own. By the way, one of uh, our uh, dear friends and acquaintances and parishioners recently, uh, V.K. McCarty, recently wrote uh, a book uh, on uh, basically trying to revive this female voice in early Christianity. And a good chunk of that book is uh, about Macrina. So V.K. McCarty, from the lips, that's the name. I'd love to read that because I find... Macrina in some I mean, the, the little I know of the philosophy of Gregory of Nyssa and, uh, and indeed the other, both Gregories, is 
absolutely fascinating. And someone like me who who digs a bit of Plotinus, who uh, is very interested in the encounter of the human being with a first cause, first principle God whose transcendence they take very seriously, right? This this God is not something you can see with your eyes, right? I find that encounter incredibly fascinating. So these guys are fascinating for that reason. But it- well, that was one of the key, basically, uh, elements of this uh, Cappadocian legacy, that they uh, oppose the Aryan idea that uh, we know God and we know God's essence. Yeah, right? but, but I'm not going to get distracted by theology because what I wanted to say we'll come back to theology, of course, is that Macrina as a character, as a person, as a historical figure is to me the most fascinating. And part of why she's so fascinating is that we know all these guys are more or less interested in asceticism. Ascetic practice is is a key part of the Cappadocian legacy as well, right? It's, It's the milieu in which they're moving to some degree. They're also moving to, they're going to posh rhetorical schools in Athens, but they're coming back to rural Turkey and living the life of uh, spiritual athletes, to some degree at least. But Macrina is doing that. She creates a kind of proto-nunnery in, I think, one of the villas of their family, because they're a posh family. They have tons of country estates. She sets up there after her failed... Uh, she was going to marry a guy. He died, and then she decided to remain a virgin the rest of her life. She sets up this group, this place where all these virgins hang out. And just do intense spiritual practice. So she, to me, is like a sort of Simeon Stylites figure in that she's doing her thing and people are coming to her for her wisdom and then going out and spreading the wisdom around the world. In this case, it's her own brother, right? Coming and being like, Macrina, let's talk and then writing treatises and theological things. But she's just doing this quite driven, intense, in a way silent spiritual practice as far as the historical uh, record is concerned. Yeah, she plays the Socratic role um, for the whole family, right? Because she um, basically having acquired all that wisdom and knowledge, she uh, basically confesses her learned ignorance. And you see how the dialogues unfold that basically in some ways they mimic the Socratic um, model of uh, Socratic Elenchus. I have this unique uh, tool or method I can kind of walk you through a series of steps and help you deliver. Right? And that's basically what she does with Gregory. Right? It basically uh, is modeled on uh, yeah, you know, early Socratic dialogues and there's a lot of philosophical, again, wisdom of uh, the Helens that it encapsulates. It's very, very interesting. Yes. So these are the dialogues with Mac- Macrina written by Gregory of Nyssa, who, yeah. who also wrote A Life of Macrina. Macrina. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Just to write the biography of a woman is, I mean, I don't want to overstate the case and say women in classical antiquity were just trash or anything like that. Women were important, of course, but they weren't usually the subjects of biographies. That isn't to say that they didn't feature in biographies, but it was, you know, usually the biography of a man and then it would mention his famous wife or, you know, the woman who led him to ruin or tried to assassinate him or whatever. In this case, it's like, no, we're going to write the biography of this woman in the genre of late antique, Hellenizing biographical traditions and and uh, even dialogic philosophical traditions. Now, we have an idea of these people, I think, a little bit, sort of somewhat concrete 
idea, which is, I, I find that really important, trying to imagine what these their lives are like a little bit. These are like a close group of family and friends from a quite an influential family and an influential set in their part of Eastern Roman Empire. They have con- connections to Constantinople, right? So we can't think of them as living out in the middle of, in the sticks, even though they are living in the sticks, but, course, but just living there without contact. They're there in yeah, the sticks, but they have a network. Yeah, yeah, becomes the Bishop of Constantinople, the yeah. Patriarch of Constantinople, so definitely, yes. So they have the connections that span the whole Eastern Empire. Let's talk about their thought. And here, you know, on the one hand, people talk about the Cappadocian fathers in a kind of vague way and say the theology of the Cappadocian fathers, but it should be clear by now that all of these thinkers have their own ideas, their own approaches, and they're all worth studying as philosophers on their own account, right? But there are a few points, I guess, we could talk about that I think are really important in a general way in the realm of ideas that are really crucial for the history of Western esotericism. And maybe we can start with the, the least kind of uh, powerful and then get save the really good stuff for later. So there's the question of origins influence and the his doctrine of apocatastasis, which is often used as a shorthand. Uh, what it really means is the sort of remaking of the world in God's image that the pr- whole prophetic tradition, the whole eschatological tradition of Christianity at this point is, you know, agreed. This is what's going to happen. Apocatastasis, though, the term is often used as a shorthand for the idea of universal salvation, which is an idea that people tended to accuse origin of having had. And that was a problem for a lot of Christian theologians, because that means what even Satan is going to be saved and made good. What's going on here? The demons are going to be at the end of everything are going to be like redeemed. Really? So this is rejected by mainstream orthodoxy. But numerous people have thought they found it in the theology of the Cappadocians. Discuss. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, um, speaking of uh, apocatastases, um, I mean, uh, a very um, sort of ancient term. It's uh, one of the classical uh, kind of homonymous appellations because it meant so many things altogether. But mainly it was associated with the Stoic philosophy, with Stoic thought. In there, it was used uh, to uh, explicate the idea of restoration and kind of reassembling of uh, the universe at the end of each cosmic cycle, right? So uh, they would say that God, the Numa, uh, in some ways goes through this infinite uh, cycle of restorations, right, where... uh, once uh, everything is compressed in uh, an instant of some sort of kind of like an atomic particle, and then it starts expanding, right? And that is how the world uh, is uh, recreated at each cosmic uh, cycle. It uh, starts expanding, it starts creating different levels of tension, yeah. Tonus, nature, yeah. so etc., and then at a certain point, it uh, acquires a more stable subsistence, supposedly. But then, the thing is that 
at a certain point, it starts shrinking back to where it was, uh, having been consumed by this cosmic conflagration, by the cosmic fire, where it returns to this original state of being a seed or some sort of like an atomic particle, right? Just to experience once again this apocatastasis, this return to its original state, the way it was, right? And that the whole world functions, you know, uh, uh, upon the premises of those uh, cosmic uh, cycles and their kind of sort of continuous restorations to the uh, original sort of state of conditions, right? Now, the Christians in some ways found this idea attractive, going back to the origins, going back to this golden age, going back to the beginnings, to the things uh, as the world used to be before its uh, lapse, before the fall, going back to that original um, sort of uh, paradisial uh, mode of subsistence, right? And the notion of apocatastases uh, was utilized in Christian economia, right, in Christian kind of soteriological thought to express this idea that the world must in some ways uh, go or kind of emanate from its ultimate root cause, God, right? But then it must return back to God so as to be restored in its original good and sort of pre-Lapsarian state. And all eschatology of the Cappadocian Fathers revolves around this idea. Meantime, the notion of universal salvation uh, and the notion of kind of uh, exclusive and sort of non-universal salvation both uh, fit well into this uh, idea of apocatastasis, going back to where we were. It's just that for Basel, for instance, the idea of uh, universal apocatastasis and the idea that the whole creation must be reabsorbed and reassimilated back to its cause and to its origin was uh, unacceptable on more like ethical premises, right? Because no matter what you do, no matter how you perform, no matter what happens to you, you will be brought back to God. But how does it square with Christian ethos, with this kind of Christian set of ethical norms where you must sort of reconcile your will with the will of God and with God's help to sort of adjust your life as so as to kind of merit in some ways uh, uh, salvation, right? So as to be worthy to um, sort of the stand in front of the dreadful judgment seat of Christ and be to be found righteous, right? So Basel rejects this idea, whereas Gregory of Nyssa reincorporates the Originian idea of this universal salvation and universal apocatastasis. And basically his argument is that, look, first of all, if we think in more traditional terms that some people will be restored to life and that life will be everlasting, right? And some people will be doomed and will even die in the sense of losing their um, 
subjectivity in the sense of this absolute annihilation of your subjectivity, in some ways it's unfair because in this life we can only commit a limited number of sins. And the thing is that a limited number of sins cannot merit an eternal infinite yeah eternal punishment right. right they just do not square and therefore the punishment must also be finite as the sin is finite the punishment must be finite with the possibility of still um sort of uh, readjusting and reabsorbing your life into god's life assimilating you and gradually returning back to God. So that was Gregory of Nyssa's idea. And so he thought that, technically speaking, there's nothing infinite in this case. And even the deeds of some, you know, perhaps fallen angels or completely corrupted minds might still be reversible in that sense because they are might, right? They are not infinite. In, in the sense that we can still in some ways readjust and purge our consciousness from all the corrupted and fallacious logi and be able to come back to God and be able to reconcile ultimately our will with God and follow God's law and uh, sort of um, be graced and um, all such things. So Gregory of Nyssa, because he is in a small village in the middle of no place, I guess is more theologically liberated. Uh, the aspirations of Basel and the aspirations of uh, Gregory of Nyssa are quite clear because the extent of the liberty is defined by the social rank and position. So Gregory of Nyssa is more isolated, more kind of philosophically leaning, and he takes on this uh, uh, notion of apocatastases in uh, this very particular modality of universal apocatastases, right? By basically reviving the uh, originian idea of universal salvation, that everything that emanates from God must revert back upon God and be reunited with its cause. A very interesting theory, I should say, and... Uh, uh, he explains all the mechanics, how like uh, each particular individual soul kind of uh, sins and then what happens uh, to it uh, in uh, its post-humus kind of humus legacy, right? That this whole soteriological process cannot be accomplished in one lifetime or at least that, you know, it requires some kind of like a follow-up stage in what happens to the soul, how it sense how it cannot um, basically suffer in its pure form you know how it will be resurrected and then uh, subjected to either infinite pleasure or infinite suffering or uh, like rather a finite suffering yeah based on a finite amount of misdeeds and false so the idea is stuff. you you have a choice like you can if you behave well and if you're you are a sincere christian you are gonna experience God's life but if not you're going to have to burn for a while to burn away 
This is like corrective punishment or the purgative. Yes, uh, it's some sort of like you know like a pre like a purgatory idea that's recently in the modern American orthodoxy you know it's been revived and uh, very much discussed right that in that sense hell and heaven must have some kind of middle ground right some sort of like you know orthodox uh, but uh, not Roman Catholic ish purgatory so and that's what they talk about that's basically um, as much I can say about apocatastasis and universal apocatastasis and I apologize if I miss something substantial you've put us on the track we've, you've put us on the track and when we get to Nyssa and look at him philosophically in more detail maybe we can come back to that another thing I wanted to discuss with you is theosis the divinization of the human being we've already touched on that quite a bit but is there more you'd like to say about what theosis is to these guys because one thing that's interesting in the christian tradition is we have very influential writings of plato especially in the theatetus talking about how the goal of human life is to become like god as much as possible and that idea really resonated out into religions and it seems to me that as a christian especially back in the day the more platonizing you were the more you were interested in this theosis idea explicitly um and theosis is always going to be a dangerous or at least a subject to be treated with great care in a religion that makes a very strong distinction between creator and created like you can't really become god or become like god in a fundamental way but you can become like god and in fact you should be so what what's going on with the Cappadocians and the idea of yeah, divinity. like uh, Athanasius and um, then Gregory Nazianzus used to say, God became man so that uh, or a human being so that a human being can become a god. Right. Meantime, that is of course not without qualifications. That uh, statement is all, all, always qualified by the idea that God, the Son, God, the Father, God, the Spirit is God by nature. But when we are incorporated hypostatically into the life of Christ, right, we become gods, you know, uh, lowercase g, by participation. Yeah? So it's a participatory divinity that we obtain. We do not become gods by nature. We do not multiply the number of hypostases in the Trinity. Yet we become deified in the sense of being fully incorporated into God's life, like uh, saints, yeah, like great martyrs. And in that case, we become the lower case god, g gods, uh, but by being fully immersed into God's life, um, by absolutely, uh, ultimately losing ourselves, by setting aside this small insignificant ego which was so much prioritized and make the whole world revolve around the axis of this ego and they're willing to sacrifice the whole world for the sake of this very finite and insignificant ego we set that aside and become partakers of this uh 
divinity of Christ. And I guess this is the core idea of what is at stake. Indeed, it does not break the boundary between like creator and the creation, right? But uh, basically, in some ways, uh, uh, invokes uh, this platonic notion of participation and sort of... Uh, <laughs> becoming like something uh, in a participatory mode. It yeah? really reminds me. Um, and I don't mean the, I, I only mean that it reminds me. I'm not trying to draw a historical connection, although there may be one. Um, it really reminds me of Plotinus's theory of noose. Uh, so the noose is the place, it's the world of forms, right? So it's a place where there's all these spiritual entities, but they're all coextensive with the noose. So the noose is one indivisible entity but it has internal things within it but they're all it's not like a bag holding a bunch of little things all those things are also the noose but they still have their own individual identity and if we are there when we exercise intellect we humans we are also coextensive with the noose but we're not the same thing as the noose so there's a what seems to it, I'm not trying to say that these guys have read Plotinus or anything like that. Um, I think that question is sometimes considered, but even if they have read Plotinus, they're clearly reading a lot more scripture and origin, I think, than they are Plotinus. But it, the solution to this problem strikes me as very similar. They've both hit on this idea of by so by doing noesis in Plotinus, you are noose for that while you're participating, while you're doing the action, right, of being part of it. And uh, for the Cappadocians, I guess theosis is similar in the sense that you are, but of course the figure of Christ is there, which is essential and isn't in Plotinus, but you are in some way, you're doing the kingdom, you're doing the divine life, and so you're part of it, it's something you're doing, and that means you are divine, but you're not the same thing as God. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I guess the key here is to find this middle ground or middle term that can, can unite, you know, two kind of heterogeneous, heterogeneous worlds, right? Uh, Origen finds that uh, uh, in the soul, similar to Plotinus, right? And um, basically, he speaks a lot about this pre-existing soul, a soul of Jesus, right? And how it's different from the human Jesus, or, you know, and uh, the word of God and all that stuff, basically mimicking uh, in some ways this uh, Neoplatonic idea of, uh, you know, ascent and uh, sort of unification uh, through this uh, middle ground or middle term. Uh, and... In the orthodoxy, it's basically the same thing. It's just that what is taken to be uh, the subject of this unification is not a mere soul or a mere body, but the whole individual hypostasis or prosopon or, you know, the self, so to say. But yes, indeed, it has this uh, divine sort of element in it and the capacity to make ascent. Gregory of Nyssa uses this, the equivalent of Plato's errors, this kind of uh, the uh, sense of force that allows you to basically climb the ladder of ascent so as to ultimately make that ineffable leap to that which is itself by itself. His epictesis is 
quite similar to Eros. But the idea that we are so inspired, divinely inspired, to make this infinite trajectory, right? Because we never get there, truly. But nevertheless, to acquire, obtain that state of conditions, which is basically God's state of conditions. But again, not by nature, but in a participatory mode. Not that we become gods, but we become gods in the sense that we share the name alone, but not the substance. So we are still human beings, but we are called gods because we participate in God's life, right? So we share the name, but not the account of substance or essence, something like that. And that idea is very crucial to orthodoxy because the idea of theosis ultimately leads people to our uh, kind of uh, uh, helps them readjust their mindset so as to be able to truly mimic Christ and participate in Christ's life and make that same ultimate trajectory with the exception that again Christ is God by nature right God word whereas we are human beings yet and yet there's something in us which is divine and which allows us to climb that ladder Boom. There's some serious stuff there. Thank you for taking us a little bit into the thought world around this this process. Actually, segues with absolutely flawless grace into the final subject I wanted to talk to you about with the Cappadocians and their thought. And this is whatever falls under the difficult and uh, problematic category of mysticism. Because Although we have seen some stuff in the Christianity we have looked at so far that could be described as mysticism, certainly in Clement, certainly in Origen, Christianity, I mean, the term mysticism that we use sometimes as a category in the history of religions or something like that is a Christian term. It's a, you know, this comes originally, of course, from Greek mysteria, but it's adapted by Christians into the into a kind of genre. And I feel like the Cappadocian Fathers is where we first see Orthodox mysticism laid out in a kind of intellectual context. Not first, but very important instance of that. So without getting too obsessed with the term mysticism, what's the Christian mysticism that we find in our Cappadocians? Well, I mean, uh, mystical is like uh, uh, silent. You're not supposed to utter this divine mystery, you know, be that like whatever one of the ancient mystery calls or anything. And that's what we proclaim. I will not speak of your mysteries to your enemies, neither will like Judas, uh, like mm. Judas will do the kiss, right? So the idea of doing things silently, of not disclosing the core of Christian commitment to those who are our adversaries is very deeply ingrained. So we do things silently. We silently mimic the cherubim and the seraphim. We who mystically represent the cherubim and the seraphim and sing the trice holy hymn to the life-given trinity, the when the royal gates are open and the choir of eunuchs uh, proceed and enter, you know, and sing this triumphal 
cherubical hymn at the beginning of this mystical part of literature. We do it silently. We mimic the cherubim and the seraphim in the sense that we are genderless as the eunuchs, for instance, or like, you know, but we don't utter because that is ineffable, inconceivable, incomprehensible, or in other ways cannot be disclosed. That's one thing, that mystical is that which is done in silence, that which must not be disclosed in any ways, because then you spoil it, you corrupt it. It's very much in Christianity, right? You receive the creed, and that is also what is not to be disclosed. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and things like that. Doing things in, uh, in silence, keeping this in mystery kind of in secret that's one thing the second thing is that um kind of stressing that this something that is absolutely ineffable inconceivable that is beyond thought be that a discursive or non-discursive thought that which transcends the intellect roughly speaking and that is also found in uh thought because uh when they entered into this intellectual contest with the second generation of uh, the arian theologians right the Eunomius, Aetius, aetius have immediately encountered the idea that god has its essence and that essence is made manifest in god's name god is called the, the father is called uh, unbegotten and that name constitutes divine essence and that essence is immediately clear and transparent to all to any individual theological mind that we know god's essence right and that the cause is kind of superior to its effect and because the father is the cause of the son the father is superior to the son and the father's essence is unbegottenness and uh, the son's spirit is filiation and god's spirit is being like you know process and all that stuff. So the Cappadocians came up with this idea that we don't really know who God is. Absolutely. Yes, non-transparent. With one qualification, that we don't know the essence. TST, what that thing is. We just don't know. Why is that the case? Well, of course, we cannot be absolutely ignorant of God. We know God through God's energies, through God's deeds, through God's actions, in this particular case, salvific actions, right? How God participates in the maintenance of his household, of God's household, how God maintains this household and takes care of you and I, so as to say that we're not the Epicureans. We don't think that God is too transcendent, too blessed, so that God's life is fully perfected and completed and there's nothing missing and that God needs nothing from us and uh, all our prayer and supplication and all, you know, when we ask favor is completely useless because God just cannot take a pose from this um, blessed life of contemplative repose so as to kind of immerse himself or God's self into our miserable and insignificant endeavors and help us. No, our God is the God who cares about us, and yet we don't know who that God is, and yet we can see that 
that God cares about us. And that is made known in God's names that manifest God's deeds or energies. That will be the ground of all subsequent Christian uh, spiritual and mystical thought. You will see it in the Hesychastic tradition, the idea of God's energies and all that stuff, right? So it's a very, very interesting idea that they um, sort of uh, use as a counter-argument to basically invalidate the um, Aryan thought and to say that no, there's no way we know who God is and what God's essence is. And to also substantiate the idea of this unknowable co-substantiality of all the hypostases within the Trinity. So they confess that God has this essence, but it's ineffable to us. We cannot know God's essence. Yet we know God through God's energies, through God's actions. And so this is the key uh, of Christian mysticism in the sense that it implies that there's something that's always passed in silence, that there's something that kind of transcends our intellect, be that again discursive intellect, some sort of dianoia or logismos or this kind of noesis, non-discursive intellect. There's something that cannot be grasped either propositionally or immediately, sort of like, you know, noetically, that transcends the intellect and goes to this divine ineffability, darkness or light or, you know, using all the imageries of which we can only speak symbolically. And that's where basically Christian uh, mysticism merges with this Neoplatonic mysticism of Plotinus, where we use negative theology, this apophosis. Thank you.